Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get into the episode. Our guest today is the legendary Nancy Silverton. Nancy is a world-renowned chef, baker, author, and co-owner of Moza Restaurant Group, which operates restaurants such as Pizzeria Moza, Osteria Moza, Kispaka, and Moza To Go. Prior to founding Moza, Nancy owned and operated La Brea Bakery in Campanile in Los Angeles after many years working under the likes of Wolfgang Puck, Michael McCarthy, and other world-class chefs. In 2014, she won the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Chef Award, one of the most prestigious accolades a chef can receive. We sat down with Nancy at her home in Los Angeles to learn all about her inspiring and unconventional journey to becoming one of the premier chefs in all of the world. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for having us in your home. Uh, We'll just dive right into your story. I know you were born in the San Fernando Valley. Where exactly? I was born in Sherman Oaks, uh, and I lived there for 10 years and then moved to Encino. Wow, what a long move. Yeah, what a long (laughs) move. But I I remember telling people like I was moving or leaving Sherman Oaks, moving to Encino. And in those days, and I don't even know the status of the the San Fernando Valley, but in those days, it was considered a move up. Like Encino was like, oh, wow, Encino. Yeah. Yeah, it's a move up. So I would say Sherman Oaks is a nine and Encino's like a 10. Right. <laughs> Not too far from when you were born in Tarz- Tarzana. I was born right? in Tarzana. Oh, where did I was, you go to school? I went to Merdinian, which is an Armenian oh. school in Sherman Oaks. Okay. Yeah. On yeah. Riverside Drive. And I was born in Northridge, so not too far. <laughs> all, all somewhat close. I went to Portola. So talk to us a little bit about your family. Your How was the early days and what was your childhood like? So I um, was born in 1954. Uh, so I grew up in the, what did we say, the 60s or the mm-hmm. 50s, something like that. Whatever you and want. I feel like it was a very typical family. Well, typical and atypical, and I'll tell you why. Typical in the sense that um, uh, we, uh, and I'm thinking in the eating world, for instance. Um, my mother cooked every night. We ate home every night. We I, had a, I have a sister, so it was a family of four. We each had our uh, place at the dining room table. As a matter of fact, um, if you bent your head backwards and looked in the other room, that is the dining room table I grew up on. Wow. It's a nice and dining room table. This is the buffet. I had it stripped. It was, I think, white or something like that. And this yeah. was the buffet. But anyway, we had our seats at the table. My father was a lawyer. 
my mother was a um, writer and then became a television writer. I saw she was a writer for General Hospital, she which was, was a writer a, for General. which was my uh, my mother and grandmother's favorite uh, soap opera to watch. And up, I so. never <laughs> ever saw it. And you know, you always I can regret. name you all the characters because I would just sit there and watch when I was a little kid with, with them. <laughs> no, <laughs> I like never, never watched. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they were both professionals. Um, and my dad would come home, um, usually around seven o'clock. We always ate around seven thirty every night. My um, and at that table, I learned so much about their lives and life. We discussed politics. We discussed my dad's trials. Uh, what my mom was working on. It was just I thought what families did. Fast forward to um, my adult generation with my kids, I don't think we ever ate at the table mm. together. I was at mm. work every single night, you know, and I think about that, that they missed out on their life was such an important part of my life. Right. Um, and in what way is it like learning about their careers and what was happening in the outside world? Or was it more just having a closer relationship with your parents? I think both? all of it. I think the idea of family sitting together yeah. for a meal every day, or every evening, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that is so lost, and I don't think, I don't know when it'll come back. Well, I think it came back at the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think that people <laughs> saw what Forced it was like to sit down <laughs> together as a family, and maybe some of them have continued that tradition, which is a beautiful tradition. Yeah. Um, but the reason why I say atypical at the same time is that um, I felt that my parents were always just a little bit different than what I what I wanted what mm. my na- who my neighbors were right. so my neighbors the drabbles right there the father of the family came home every night and he had a martini and he sat at the barca lounger and they all sat in front of the TV and they ate dinner that way with TV trays right mm. and I thought oh that looks kind of interesting why can't I have a little bit of that in my life which I didn't do and by the way that sitting around and eating as a family is something I appreciated much later in life. Right. Growing up to it, it just seemed like that's what you did, and then I saw what other people did, and I wanted some of that. I, I, I do think that, like, I mean, that we had the very similar experience, like, growing up. Like, you know, we waited for our dad to come home. Mom would have been cooking the whole time, homework, sit down, whatever, discuss stuff on the table, have arguments, whatever, right? Whatever it was. Like, yeah. You just, that's what you thought it was, right? And then... I think as we got older, that started to everybody had their own schedules, and then I think now even you'll see just like a husband and a wife eating at separate times. At times. Yeah, it just it's kind of lost. And I was having this conversation with somebody recently, and I don't want to get political here, but they almost said that they think that like the, the lack of that in our society has led to a lot of different issues, right? Like a lot of different socioeconomic, socio political issues. Um, and I do think that that has been lost a little bit. And I think time and stress and living in a place like Los Angeles can do that to people. 100%. You know, 100%. I think that when I think about how lucky I was to grow up in that era. Yeah. Do you think that the conversations at that table um, shaped you in any way as you think back on those conversations and those times? Very much because my parents were, were, um, were, people that were very, very sort of involved with, well, with what was going on, very political. So I got a very, I got a political education at a very, very young age. 
and they were very vocal about their politics, and they would discuss them. They would discuss current events. You know, they both read the paper cover to cover every single day, so I knew what was happening in the world. But also, they read a lot. They went to plays. They went to museums. Um, so yes, through them, I think that I had such an education. Yeah, we always talk about this. It's like this um, this exposure factor that you get, like when you're a kid and you're you're exposed to a lot of things. It makes life a little bit, I think, easier when you're older in a sense of trying to choose kind of what you know what you want to do with your life mm-hmm. because you kind of have seen more things than if you're kind of not in you know exposed to those things as a kid. Yeah. So from that perspective. Yeah, it's like if if you're in the other room playing video games all day, maybe you're not, you know, getting those different perspectives of what's out there. What's in, what what is out there for me to do when I grow up? Right, and yeah. you know, I wasn't um, I wasn't allowed TV. We had one TV at the house. It was a black and white, a small one, and I definitely my TV hours were definitely restricted. It wasn't an, an all day. The TV was never my babysitter. You yep. know, no such thing, obviously, with video games or anything mm-hmm. like right. that. So it was. But what did you? I guess what did you like to spend your free time doing? I was very social, and because I grew up until I was 10 in a very small uh, neighborhood, I would say, you know, kind of tract homes, right, in Sherman Oaks, very modest neighborhood where we just ran in and out of everybody's house. So I was very social, and I was very attached to my block of friends, Mm -hmm. Um, went to summer camp in the summers, didn't, you know, I think it, I don't know if it was the, the... economics of my family or it just wasn't done but there wasn't the amount of traveling that mm. is done like you see now these right. lavish vacations that mm. that I know that I dragged my kids on yeah. and yeah. I know you hear all the time of people making those kinds of plans for us it was a road trip to go see the relatives in Canada mm-hmm. it was to Palm Springs to where my dad had a, a a client that operated a hotel to San Francisco to see my mom's sister. But, and then the big vacation was um, every year or so to go visit my aunt, my great aunt in New York, in Manhattan, where we would all cram into her studio apartment in the apartment in the, uh, in the village. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But so, you know, again, there wasn't those lavish trips to, I never went to Hawaii with them as, as a kid, yep. we ended up as an adult. They brought my kids and, and my sister's kids, and we all went to Hawaii. But we didn't do that kind of thing growing up. Mm-hmm. Food was obviously a very important part of and is an important part of your story and your journey. What what were you guys eating around the dinner table during these dinners? So my mother loved to cook. And um, my mother, which was very rare in the 50s slash 60s, is my mother actually enjoyed cooking. So she did not buy Peg Bracken's "I Hate to Cook" or "I Hate to Cook" cookbook or whatever that <laughs> book was called. She in um, she really enjoyed cooking, and she was really proud of what she put on the table. Now I was a picky eater, and I didn't like her food at all, and I can tell you that. Um, and I always talk about that story when people are really want to hear the wonderful food that I loved and try and, and try to recreate growing up. And all I can say is, I got to tell you, I hated my mother's cooking. I hated it because the neighbors, I love with the neighbors. I love the neighbors that served the TV dinners. I love the neighbors that served really, you know, um, uh, ham with candied pineapple and all the things that I saw on TV. Mm. You know, that was the era of Leave it to Beaver and, you know. Was hers um, more like traditional dishes? Oh, it wasn't that there were more traditional. She loved to cook 
out of small cookbooks that she would dig out from all over the world. Mm. So she would love to make beef bourguignon, and she would love to make spanakopita, mm. and she loved her her lamb stuff with garlic, you know, and all these things that I really would just roll my eyes at, you know. <laughs> so when you talk about food being such a part of my life, and it has become obviously a huge part of my life or yeah. my life, right. uh, it wasn't growing up. It grew up me thinking, I wishing that she would make something else for dinner. Hmm. Well, I feel like we always think that way, right? Like you think when your mom's cooking that same thing, you're like, I mean, I, I always mess with my mom like when I was a kid, like that every Wednesday she'd cook like the same thing and like every other Tuesday would be another thing. And you're like, can we like switch it up a little bit? And now you see these things at like fine dining restaurants that are like $66 a plate. <laughs> you're like, God damn it, mom, why didn't you open a restaurant? You know, like <laughs> yeah. we could have done something with this thing. Yeah, it wasn't like, and there was, it's funny because I remember also, you know, all these, uh, your, these questions are bringing about these memories of going to my friend's houses where they would have on the refrigerator the week of the menu that was going to be made. The meal prep. Yeah. <laughs> so they gave you a little heads up yeah, yeah, on what to expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and it, you, know, yeah. you could see on Tuesdays yeah. it was this. And Wednesday, you know, it's kind uh, of like the school cafeteria. But no, my mom was a little bit more spontaneous. But I think the point was is that she enjoyed feeding us and she enjoyed what she was doing. And when she made something that she was proud of, she really lit up. Like I remember, this is a little bit older, mm -hmm. but I remember when, um, I, or I was a little bit older, but I remember the first time she attempted to do Julia Child's roast chicken. Mm -hmm. And she loved to say it went on for six pages and you had to turn it and, you know, and the oven had to go up and down and the chicken had to be turned. But the result was something to be proud of. And she was. Yeah. So, um, so like, I guess when you got a little bit older, um, do, like how did you decide, um, what you wanted to do? Like perhaps in college, I think I saw you were a poly yes. sci political science major. Was that because your dad was like yeah, a lawyer and you wanted to? Yeah. And I don't know how colleges work now. Yeah. Um, but I know that then you had to enter a college with a, with a major, right. right? And maybe that's the same. Anyway, I picked you can, a major. You can I, go in undeclared, but at some point yeah. you have to choose a major. Yes. That's right. You could say undeclared. Um, what did I want to be in my when I you know grew up in my um, in my annual in my senior um, my annual and the senior question always is what do you want to do and I mm -hmm. I didn't know it I thought I'd be a lawyer because my dad's a lawyer I mean I didn't even think of a career what it would be I just thought I guess I'll be a lawyer and that's what I thought so I entered as political science and then quickly changed over to liberal arts. Mm -hmm. Uh, the school that I went to, there was a tiny little liberal arts college within the college. And is this Sonoma State? Yes, yeah. up in Sonoma County. Yes, so it was called Sonoma State then. And um, so I quickly switched to liberal arts. Um, but before that, not thinking of it as a career or anything, um, I started to cook in my college dormitory because there was the most handsome man I had ever seen was working in the college dormitory kitchen. And I, I, uh, got up the guts to go over to him and tell him that I would love to cook in the dormitory and how much I love to cook. And, and that I was a vegetarian because he was yeah. the vegetarian cook. So it was just a bunch of lies. All of it lies. Oh, so I, was, I was about to ask, like, he was gorgeous. Except he was gorgeous and yeah, you liked him. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was he about was to say, gorgeous. by this time, like, had you cooked that, like a lot? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's nor. kind of how, like, this podcast started. We just <laughs> went up to, seriously, our first guest. And we're like, we have a podcast. We interview founders. We had, like, okay, we cool. had no microphones, nothing. Like, we were just, we were just like, <laughs> what we, did you use? As <laughs> yeah. And I'm, by the way, great life lesson. Quick pause. You just got to take the leap of faith. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> and I'll tell you, the idea of uh, of fate or your calling, you know, like why doesn't everybody have the opportunity to meet their fate? You know, right. there's no question that everything, even going to this school. So th- I went to Sonoma State. Why did I go to Sonoma State? Because my best friend was going to Sonoma State. Yeah. It wasn't even, you know, now the 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 competition to get into colleges, the um, panic of getting into right. colleges, the amount of colleges people apply to. You know, it's it's so... I mean, then it was... I didn't even think about going on the East Coast. I didn't even know if colleges existed on the East Coast. I knew it would be the West Coast. I applied to the UC campuses. I applied to the state colleges and then Claremont, Claremont the you know, the um, Claremont colleges, yep. Pomona yep. colleges, mm-hmm. Pitzeris. Everywhere I went, I got accepted to, you know, and... I didn't want to go to, I wanted to go to Santa Cruz. That was the one. And I did, and I got accepted to San Diego State. But I mean, sorry, University of San Diego. Diego. But but it was like, where should I go? I don't know. Toby, you're going to Sonoma. I'll go to Sonoma State with you, Toby. That was the reason. So how did I get there? Fate, right? Here I think this guy is gorgeous. I tell him I love to cook, you know, and that's fate. I'm cooking in this dorm. And I I have this memory so clear. It was a a new kitchen in the storm, and it was a stainless steel um, Mm -hmm. professional kitchen, exactly as clinical and and sterile as you would think. It was a metal table with a shelf above my head, and I remember looking straight ahead, doing something, and then kind of stepping back and thinking, I think I'll be a cook when I grow up, you know, and that was sort of it, and I never... I never went back. I did finish two more years of college, so I dropped out of school in my senior year. Mm-hmm. But I so I did continue with college. But over this, I mean, not all of it, but some of it. Yeah. Over the next two summers, I got jobs in back in Los Angeles, in restaurants, mm-hmm. and then finally in my senior year, I was like, "Well, I don't need a degree. I'm dropping out." What about it? So you said you weren't cooking a lot up until that that point that day what about it at that moment i mean first of all how did you even decide like what were you cooking like how did it come out i mean it was like i'm I'm guessing like he really the guy really liked the food that you made (laughs) well you know i told him i was a vegetarian remember and i didn't know how to cook and i went out and i bought my first cookbook which i still have it was called uh cooking creatively with natural foods and i just started flipping the pages and following the recipes and um, the two things that I that made me have that epiphany mm-hmm. was one, how much I loved using my hands. And my mom used to always say to me, "I think you're an artist. You love to use your hands." I used to work a little with clay. Mm-hmm. I thought I was a terrible artist, and I would get so frustrated that I could never draw. Mm-hmm people but she used to always try to encourage me and she used to say you need to work with your hands so and i working with my hands i love but the other thing i love is when i would bring this food out and i would serve it and then people would tell me they loved it and that joy of giving people this gift and people giving you that love back was just so two. this was obviously before like culinary school. This Anything before working in restaurants. This is my first semester. Do you think in they college. actually loved it, or do you think that they were just telling you they loved it? No, I'm I think just, they did. I'll they tell did. you why. And so like I guess yeah. Tell me why. I'm curious. Like why? Why were you? How were you so good at it if you hadn't done it before? Was it? The it wasn't. Of- believe me, I was making like steamed cauliflower with cheese melted on it. Yeah. I think what they loved is this was the first semester 
of the college dormitory. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one thing. And they the, the first year of having a dining room. Yeah. The college that I went to tended to attract, they used to call it Granola State instead mm-hmm. of Sonoma State. So <laughs> it was the first hippie, hippie um, university. It really was. Um, and I mean, I had never seen a pair of Birkenstocks before. And <laughs> that's, it was a sea of Birkenstocks <laughs> in that school, right? I could just like so, imagine this. Yeah, no, long skirts. It was, you know, it was, and the idea, and so many vegetarians. <laughs> so the idea that there was a program within this college a dormitory kitchen that catered to non-meat eating people, mm. they loved it. So I made things like lentil loaf, you know, everything was very, very heavy, probably the worst version of vegetarian food that old you know those those old memories that we have of vegetarian food having no flavor (laughs) being gummy tasteless i'm sure yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding no offense Um, to the vegetarians but yeah that 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 pleasing people and so uh, to answer your question it wasn't that i was a prodigy and i was making this incredible i was cooking straight out of a cookbook yeah and making vegetarian casseroles because the reason i ask is like oftentimes it's either so like there's something to be said about having a passion for something and really enjoying it and then there's something to be said about getting like really positive feedback or just positive reinforcement from people around you about something that you're perhaps better at than the average person around them right and like both of those things could be like an indicator of like oh what what am i meant to do with my life or my career right well you know it's funny because you're bringing up so many subtle things that I thought about in my career. So my parents woke up every day and they woke up and they were excited about their day. Mm-hmm. And I had so many friends who I could hear their parents say, Ugh, I have to go to work. Mm-hmm. So every day they dreaded the idea of going to work. Right. And work in life was something separate. And I know from a very early age, I said to myself, I will never work at something that I don't want to get up in the day and do. You know, mm-hmm. my work will not be that kind of life. And I knew that real, I mean, before college, I don't know how old I was, but I remember telling myself, I will never do that. Just to push a little bit and just to play the devil's advocate role here, I agree with you, right? Like, th- that makes complete sense. But do you think that there are people that, might feel the same way, but don't have the opportunity or weren't in the same position from a familial standpoint to take on the risk of pursuing something they really enjoyed, but have to get forced into doing something they don't and just make money and therefore they feel that way. Yeah. And and I feel badly for them. You know, I feel like it really is, you know, and I've, and I've said that before that, you know, I'm, or people that never find what it is that, that they're passionate about. I, was they say, just I feel assume. like that's the more yeah, rare. Yeah, and I feel so lucky yeah. at a certain, at such a young age, meaning just my first semester in college, I found out what I wanted to do. And I, and I find that, and that's what I was saying earlier about fate and, right. and um, you know, was it my fate and, and how lucky mm-hmm. I was that it all worked out that way because it doesn't. Do you think out. the contrast uh, of like your cooking and your mother's cooking had something to do with it? Like, did you ever think like, oh, like I'm actually like, you're, were you comparing it to that and saying like, oh, actually, this is pretty good versus like what I didn't like? Well, I know. I mean, I know that I would have liked her cooking had I been able to turn back the clock and experience with, with the knowledge and yes. and, and obviously the uh, the um 
the widening of my palate, had mm. I been able to turn back the clock, I would have, because she also was somebody um, that was very nutritious conscious. Mm, yeah. Nutritious. Like health nutritiously, conscious. Nutritiously nutritious. Make it sound better. Con- yeah, health conscious. Health, health conscious. <laughs> How about that? In an era when that wasn't happening, right. you know, I came. I grew up in the era of convenience yeah. food. So right. my house, there was no white bread. My mother refused to cut the crusts off bread. She refused <laughs> to peel my vegetables. Yep. She refused to buy plastic cling wrap. It was called then. Yep. Plastic wrap. Yeah. She would only buy wax paper, mm. and I hated it. <laughs> And uh, if she ever gave me something like chips or anything like that, which was rare because I didn't, it would never be the individual pack one because she felt the paper was very wasteful, you know, yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. So I always, um, I have one other very close friend and our parents were very similar and we grew up together and we still talk about how embarrassed we were about the idea that our mothers would give us as our lunch bag, the recycled large grocery bag yeah. that they got at the supermarket rolled down and there we would walk when everyone else had like little beautiful pink and, mm-hmm. yeah. and you know, beautiful little bags that right. they would, you know, um, and how embarrassed and how much I hated my lunches. So. What I find really fascinating, Nancy, is that at the time that you d- discovered that this was something you really enjoyed doing and something that you perhaps wanted to do for a long time, it wasn't a time where chefs or being in hospitality was necessarily seen as this sexy career choice. No. I mean, I think that really came probably in the last two decades, maybe a little, or maybe a little less than that. Less than that. Yeah. Maybe 15 years, 12, 15 years really where social media was able to kind of accelerate the popularity of some of these folks in hospitality. I mean, did, did you ever consider like how you would make money? No, I didn't consider even... Be aspiring to anything more than cooking. Right. You know, when I had that moment right. in the kitchen and I said, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to be a cook for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I didn't think, I want to be a chef. I want to be a restaurant owner. I want to be a TV personality. You know, right. none of that. I just said, I want to cook. And I didn't even think about, I didn't even think about, will this support me? You know? Right. What did your parents think about it? And that's also, you know, everything just sort of worked in my favor. favor. And so I really feel like I have been born under a lucky star because, again, to your point that this was not a prestigious life choice career being a restaurateur in in those days. And I came from, well, two professional uh, parents, a lawyer and a and a writer. Both of them could have said, I will disown you if you continue. Right. Or think about this. I dropped out in my senior year, right. and neither of them said, you need to at least finish school. Mm-hmm. Right? Very progressive of them. Very progressive of them. Yeah. And um, my father did say, well, do make me a promise then. I want you to promise me you'll go to the Cordon Bleu. Now, I didn't even know that there were cooking schools, <laughs> and I had never heard of the Cordon Bleu. And I said, sure. And he signed me up, and there was a year-plus waiting list, and I went to the one in London because I didn't speak French, so I didn't go to the one in France. But, you know, there was a fantastic cooking school in the United States of that time, the Culinary Institute of America yes, in Hyde yeah, Park. Yeah. I didn't even know it existed, you know. <laughs> and I don't think yeah. he did either. He sent me to, <laughs> to London. So he... Both of them were 
right. incredibly supportive in an era where that was rare. And they were so proud. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you go to London right after you dropped out your senior No, year? I had to wait. I had to wait oh, a year. It, okay. I dropped out in 76, mm-hmm. and I had to wait till fall of 77. So were you working at a restaurant in that year, or were you I did. To, yeah. I asked them. I, I, so I had mentioned that for the couple summers in between when I first started cooking, I came back to Los Angeles, and I got jobs at two, what was very trendy at the time, both of which are no longer around, Um we called them French cafes then. Mm-hmm. That's where they had salad niçois, mm-hmm. and you could get a chocolate souffle for mm-hmm. dessert, you know, and sort of all those French yep. classics run by Americans. <laughs> um, what were they called? One, one was, well, one was called Yellow Fingers. Cool, However, Yellow Fingers, there was a Yellow Fingers in New York. And oh. so pretty soon after I worked there, they had to change it. And it was called Cafe La Frite. Mm. And the other one was called. Ginger House. So one was in Tarzana I worked at, and the other one was in Sherman Oaks. Mm. Um, but I could see what happened in a kitchen where you got a job in, um, when you were hired, you got p- sort of put into a position where they kept you in, and there wasn't necessarily any growth for a while. Or like if you were a line cook, you were a line cook. And yeah, and that was, your, that was your position, and those are the dishes you cooked. So I said, look, at, I would like to go into what I thought was the best restaurant in my in my area or close enough. And I'd like to apprentice there so that I can see all parts of the kitchen. Now, I don't know how I even knew that that was a European concept thing. Concept. I never even heard it here. And how I came stage, up with it, I have a stage. Yeah. Uh, but they, I didn't do that at Yellow Fingers or, <laughs> right. you know, there was no stages. <laughs> and I didn't know right. yeah. yeah. But I, yet I, and they, and my, they supported me for that year. It was a restaurant called 464 Magnolia in Larkspur, which was in Marin County. I was still living in Sonoma County mm. and I would commute there. Mm. And it was everything that I imagined and just a wonderful starting place. You know, um, what's commonly asked to, cooks of of my generation for the last umpteenth years is what was it like to be a woman in the kitchen back in those days? And that kitchen that I worked in was I didn't know there you know, I my my response was, is there an issue about being a woman in the kitchen? I mean I didn't even it didn't even cross Were you not the only woman in the kitchen at the time? There was somebody else in desserts, but it was just the way that I wasn't looked any at any differently, or didn't wasn't capable about doing anything that anyone else wasn't doing. This was a restaurant that was owned by a husband and wife, um, at the time, Mm -hmm. husband and wife team. They were college educated from Michigan State. They um, ran their restaurant. Very, very locally, they bought only California wines and a lot of California products. Very unusual at that time as well. Um, But they were smart and political and they read and they saw movies and we discussed. It was like being every night, like being at the dinner table at my family's home. And all the cooks that were also in the kitchen, super eclectic. Um, There was a um, wonderful hippie named Dennis. There was a um, 
do you know what the um that uh that uh, radical group called the Weathermen? No. This was mm. I don't know where it even started, but <laughs> they were like a, a what you could think of as a, a very radical uh leftist group mm. in the uh in the seventies. There was a weatherman, you know, you know. We had um uh a um a performance artist. You know, it was just like really eclectic yep. group of cooks right. that um being a woman really Right. There's so much other stuff going on where you're just like... I, I didn't know what they were talking about when they would ask me. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I was there for a year and then I went to the Cordon Bleu. Mm-hmm. And how was, how was that experience? I mean, being in culinary school and learning, like learning it more from a, like an educational standpoint, perhaps, as opposed to like just, you know, cooking, you know, as you were before. Right. It was, you know, like... Cooking, as I did before, was kind of like being in summer camp, you right. know, and we would say, like, what should we make tonight? And we would take some of the cookbooks off the shelf, and they were all French cookbooks, and we'd flip through them, and this sounds good, and this sounds good, and we would just do it. And here, all of a sudden, I was had to be very serious, you mm-hmm. know, and take this really seriously. And it was. It was very different, and I didn't do that well or adjust to that style in the same way as I just adjusted to being at like 464 Magnolia, you know, mm-hmm. because then at the Cordon Bleu, everything was so strict and everything was done by the book and there was no, you couldn't deviate, you know. So if I was making something and I'm like, wow, it's a little bit sweet. What do you, what do you think if I take the sugar, you know, nothing. Yeah. Right? Stop questioning were, things. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we cooked on these very kind of archaic little kitchens. We were, we were, we were paired up. Uh, in twos and uh, paired up. Um, we were paired up and we cooked together in these little kitchens and the quality of the ingredients was not very good. A lot of the desserts ended up being garnished by um, opening up a can and getting the canned fruit out of it. You know, it just, nothing, everything was portioned out in very unappealing um, uh, portions. Like for instance, one of my jobs when I was at 464 Magnolia was because I lived in Petaluma, where there was a very famous duck farm. I would get the ducks from the duck farm and put them in the back of my VW station wagon and bring the ducks, you know, to work every day. But you were the farm to table gal. I was the farm to table <laughs> gal. Um, so it was it was very different. But what I felt like I was learning was the classics that I didn't learn there that I've since forgotten so much of. But I learned how to make all of the mother sauces, you know, all the, you know, yeah. um, all, everything that would, that would um, kind of get me ready to work in a French restaurant had I chosen to ever work in a French restaurant. How, how long was this program? This was, so they had a few different programs. Yeah. The one I took was the certificate program. I think mm-hmm. it was a four-month program. They also had a year-long year diploma course. Got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you meet anybody there that you still keep in touch with or you ended up keeping no. in touch with after? There was one woman that I did for a bit, mm-hmm. but I've been back. You know, it's interesting. I now have a restaurant in London, um, a Pizzeria Mozza, mm-hmm. and it's off of Marleybone, and that's exactly where my school was. It was on Marleybone Lane, mm, wow. and it's kind of sort of full circle because I think- Was that intentional? Of, say it again. Was it intentional? To no, it? no, that's okay. where the, just the opportunity to, to open was, yeah. and- um, as they did not welcome my questions, they also, <laughs> I, 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 I was not an overachiever, let's put it that way. Right. I, you know, things didn't always work out the best. So I think I, I have my diploma still, or my certificate, 
Um, but I wasn't highly rated at all. I think I got, you know, like a 78, something like that in my, in my finals. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't like a stellar student. And I don't think that they ever looked at me as a success story or someone that was going right. to be a success story. Did you ever think of yourself that way? Of of not perhaps like oh I'm not doing well maybe I'm not meant to do this or not, well, not really I knew I didn't do well there mm-hmm. um, while I was going there but it didn't it didn't turn me off I just felt like I didn't do well or I didn't I didn't um, kind of blossom in that kind of environment but I didn't think right. you thought I'll get out either. of here I'll go work in a restaurant yeah, exactly. I'll figure it out yeah yeah. yeah yeah I didn't give it that much thought or I didn't leave like wow I'm a I'm only a C plus student. <laughs> you, you know, it's super interesting. Like, I'm sure we've had this thought before, but it just kind of came to me that when you talk about being kind of this average student that you know at the culinary school, but a lot of those that end up becoming successful or standing out were the ones that asked the questions that folks didn't want you to ask, yeah, or you know questioned authority or did something that was different than the norm and they end up being a success story yet the institutions that they went to that recognize that probably they're not stupid never change their ways no. they they still kind of do the same thing like there's been yeah. enough time that's passed right. for them to see the successes right. Right. you're like well yeah. okay pat was an average student nancy was an average student <laughs> they're both successful maybe we should change it. it's like no let's <laughs> yeah. do exactly <laughs> as funny. it is i want do you think there's a method to their madness like do you think that they're just like <laughs> it's just it. it's, we're not going to change it's it's institution it's institutionalized to the point it's where it's very, yeah. very to difficult to change yeah right. <laughs> yeah. yeah so but that, it's, it's so it's just so interesting to me that that's what happens and i think we've been doing this now for five and a half years and it's almost always the story that the person we're sitting down with was average sometimes they weren't um and then that average student that average person turns into somebody who ends up doing extra ordinary non-average things um so it's just it's just very interesting what did you do after like Cardon uh blah so after, um, let me just think, after s- school, I think after school, I actually returned to the um, 464 Magnolia, the restaurant I had left, and I st- went there back there for another year. They had not, hadn't in the past um, served lunch. So in communicating while I was gone, it was like, great, you're going to school, come on back, let's open for lunch, you be the lunch chef. Mm. And so that's what I did. I went, came back for a year. And uh, and put out, uh, developed a lunch menu. I know one of the things was a roast pork sandwich. I just think a Chinese roast pork sandwich. I remember that right now. Um, and I'm not sure why I decided to leave, or but I did. I stayed there only a year, and I know that I then went traveling with my sister and a friend back to Europe, but nothing to do with um, school. That was that. That was that. After high school trip of living, backpacking through Europe for $10 a day that I hadn't done or something like that, because that's what it was. We went to Italy and Spain and France and ate, you know, slept in hostels and things like that. So I was gone, was in, was staying on a Greek island for a month. So it was just like a trip through Europe. Um, But then when I returned from that trip, I wasn't sure where I was going to 
live San Francisco, Northern California, which I loved, or return back to Los Angeles. And in that time, and this was 1979, LA had better restaurants, in, in my opinion or what I read, than Northern California. So I decided to re- come back to Los Angeles and look for work here. And I think on my first night back or my second night back, my parents took me to Michael's restaurant in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, we just ate here. We loved it. This is where you need to work. <laughs> and so, so so one thing I, actually I noticed too, um, which is it seems like so far a recurring theme is the couple places that you had worked, actually the, the restaurant that you had worked at, you almost like created your own role. And I feel like that's also tied with, you know, asking the questions that you're not supposed to be asking. It's like, and, and it's, it's interesting. It's like, you know, you don't, versus choosing like, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, I'm supposed to go down this path and I'm supposed to start here and then build my way up, like, you know, in a very like blueprinted manner versus seeing an opportunity like, oh, there's no lunch. I'm going to be the lunch chef. Right. There, you know, there's no stock program or whatever. I'm just going to apprentice. Like, it's, you know, that creating those roles almost like allows you to further your career so much quicker than if you're going to play by the rules. I think you're right. Yeah. So you go to Michael's, what happens? Do you approach so the- my parents yeah. call Michael over and embarrass <laughs> me? And they, you know, my daughter just came back from, you know, Europe. She had been, she went to the court on blah, you know, all the accolades. How can she get a job here? That kind, you know, they, yeah. they kind of did the talking. So uh, he said at that time, do you know uh, Michael's restaurant in Santa Monica? Yeah. So do you, are you familiar with I'm, it as well? I'm not. No, okay, no. so Michael's restaurant and in 1979 was the hot restaurant in Los Angeles. And Michael McCarthy and his wife, uh, Kim, opened it. He was, you know, when you look at the pictures of him, I mean, so 1979, how many years ago is that? A lot. 44. 44 years ago. He was like a little kid. I don't mm. think he was 30, you know, just 30-something, you know. Opens this restaurant that had contemporary art on the wall. Everything was white. The servers wore um, Ralph Lauren made shirts, you know, and it was California cuisine. Mm. It, it was the first California cuisine restaurant in Los Angeles. And um, went to eat there. Absolutely loved it. And um, so Michael said, come back the next day and talk to his manager, Carl. So next day I show up to talk to Carl. Um, And this is going to really confuse you. So (laughs) try to follow along. And that means the world try to follow along because it's such a funny story. So I meet Carl and at Michael's, and um, I assumed Michael had told him that I wanted to work in the kitchen. So I came in to see him and I said, I'm here. Michael told me to come in and about a job. And he said, great. So Carl was the manager and one of Carl's jobs was, this is where it gets confusing, to run the computer system or the point of sale system that the servers would give their tickets to, then he would enter, enter them into a computer and that, and he sat in the kitchen and that was fed over to the line and that's what the cooks cooked from. Now, right. Michael had one of the first POS system that was part of inventory that the wine program mm-hmm. was on was on as well mm-hmm. so that everything was up to date. You never had to... Get you know you didn't have to reprint. Okay, so it's yeah. kind of confusing. So Carl did it for lunch and for dinner. Michael's was only four months old, and he needed someone to do it at lunch so he could have lunch off. So he said, "Well, there's no openings in the kitchen," which wasn't true. 
Um, but I have a job in um, on the management side of things. Yes, to to be this computer, whatever it was called, <laughs> and so to further your um, thoughts of I didn't have a straight trajectory, but I just kind of took it. I somehow knew that you take whatever you can de- get to get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's what I did. I said, sure, I would love to do that. And that's how I started off at Michael's. Mm-hmm. And I was terrible at it. And okay. to this day, I don't even own a computer. I've never used a computer. I do have email on my phone, but that's even recent. For years, yeah. I didn't. I was so bad at it. I would put in, try to put in the orders, right? And then they would be the wrong things and the cooks would you know, make the <laughs> wrong thing and they would yell at me, you know? But I really only did it. It was very short-lived. And when I mean that, it was definitely under a month. I yeah. did it for a few weeks. I realized I was terrible. And the chef, Jonathan Waxman, who is one of the mm-hmm. premier chefs in the country, <laughs> said, why are you even doing that? And he found out I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to cook. And he immediately brought me into the kitchen, and he said to me, um, come into the kitchen. We need people, um, and what we need you to do is we need you to work with the pastry chef, Jimmy Brinkley. Jimmy Brinkley is was incredibly temperamental, and Jonathan, the young kid, Jonathan thought he was going to walk out any day, and, he, and nobody knew the recipes, and he needed me to come in and learn everything I could so I could take his place. Now, at the Cordon Bleu, not only did I ask questions about why things could be done differently, I what I really failed at was desserts. <laughs> and because of that, I had no interest in the dessert portion of a menu. I mean, I did not, but to get into a little bit closer to the savory side, I took that to that job working with Jimmy, who outlived my stay there. Mm -hmm. We worked so well together. I ended up enjoying it so much and knowing that this was the part of the kitchen that was really where I belonged. You know, it's it's such a great story and I know there's more to it. And it's such it's so relevant, I think, to the times where, you know, you're seeing all these people that are losing their jobs or headed into a recession. Apparently that's what they keep saying. Um, and it might be difficult and people might, you know, have to put their passions aside for a little bit, or they're going to take something, a job that they don't want. But I do think that that story of just like, get in the door. Yeah. Right. Just, just, just get in but the I door. I think it is important. And I would try to pass that on to my kids or anybody else asking advice is that just get in the door yeah i mean i just time and time again i've just seen that if you wanted to get out of being the computer lady you it was on you right no one was going to come and say nancy come to the kitchen right you had to almost like push yourself in and it obviously doesn't always work out this way i think there's times that it just you just being the computer lady but if you push and if you show people that I want to do more, I want to be more, I want to contribute more, I think the right person, the right people will see you and will choose you out of that pack and say, here you go, right? Right. Or like, even if you don't like something, the desserts, and then you end up like, whether you're good at it or that leads to another opportunity, like, it's just so crazy that none of this stuff was linear, like at all. Even though you're on this linear, like food path, the path within the path was just all over the place. Right. And I'm sure we'll 
continue, but will be all over the place as your story goes along too. Right. Uh, but, you know, something that was, that one could do in those days and one can't do anymore pretty much because of all sorts of labor mm. labor laws, you know, that are just so tight right now. Right. So there, if I wanted to come in and work my eight hours on the clock and then punch out and stay, but I still want to work and I still want to learn and I still want to do right. things, that's what I did. And if that was 16 or 18 or 20 hours, that was fine. You can't do that anymore. Right. Right. Which is such a shame. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Axiom Print, based in the greater LA area. Printing is essential to every business's success and crucial for marketing and building your brand. There are over 200 products available on their website for convenient online ordering, and custom requests are always welcome through one of Axiom's dedicated account managers. You can upload your design, choose your options, and make payment all from the comfort of your computer or even on the go using your phone 24 hours per day. And if you're not sure how to design your material, no problem. Their team of experienced designers will work with you to create professional and eye-catching designs that effectively market your brand. So if you're looking for a reliable and affordable printing partner, look no further than Axiom Print. Check them out at axiomprint.com and be sure to use the promo code THEFOUNDERHOUR to get 15% off your first order or share the promo code with your dedicated Axiom Print account manager. All right, let's get back into the show. Uh, so how how long were you at Michaels, and then what? Why did you end up leaving? So I was at so this was 1979. I was at Michaels first for a year, and at the end of that first year or year and a half, um, Michael and the chef Jonathan had the idea of sending me to pastry school in France, which was a wonderful thing. Oh. Um, and that all came about because there's a there was a very famous pastry chef slash he had a school slash he had some books. His name was Gaston Lenote. And he was doing a workshop up in Napa, up in the Napa Valley for three days. And the expense of going there was as expensive as taking, well, he, what he gave us week-long classes in, in France. So one or two of those classes. And so at first they said, we want to send you to the Napa Valley to this pastry school. I mean, to this pastry workshop. And then they thought, you should just go to France and do it there because it's pretty much the same price. No arguments so, here. Yeah. So we kind of came up with a plan where they would pay for my a couple of my classes. I would pay for a couple more. But I would certainly... Um, have to get my way, you know, I paid for my flight over there and uh, they helped me with living expenses there or something like. But anyway, I went to France for six months, which was just fantastic, you know. And it was a time when there wasn't a lot of French influences on desserts in this country yet. There weren't enough French pastry chefs that were here, you know, there was a speckling of them around the country in very fine hotels, right? But, and there weren't that many French bakeries. There just wasn't a lot, a big French pastry culture. And so a lot of the technique that I learned there and brought back with me here is technique that 
everybody uses in every kitchen across the United States now because there's been enough people right. that have learned right. a lot of this. But then it was so new. Um, and But Jimmy already had taught me a nice um, beginning because he came from the premier French restaurant in Los Angeles. It was called L'Hermitage. And that's where Jimmy had his start. So there were a lot of things that I was used to, but they did it in such a higher level. So it was just a really, really fantastic experience. You know, I thought I would go there and here I'm coming from the hottest restaurant in Los Angeles, working with a pastry chef that came from the premier French restaurant in in um, Los Angeles. I would probably go there and I would teach them a few things, right? You know, <laughs> And there I got there and I look around, you know, first of all, I didn't speak French still. And at that time, no classes were taught in English. So I had to really watch very carefully. But it was very clear that my fellow classmates were people that were, and they were all men, by the way. I was the only woman then. They were just pastry chefs, people that had been in the pastry world for 20, 30, 40 years that were coming back to this class wow. to kind of brush up on things, you know. And I was very course. humbled. <laughs> I was very humbled by their skill. And it really set the perspective that, you know, this is something that takes a long time to, to get practice. good at. Yeah. Especially some of those really, really fine things that, I mean, for instance, their writing on cakes was mm. so, you know, you you write happy birthday on a cake here and it's with, you know, big thick lettering, you know, and there it was just that beautiful, beautiful calligraphy, you know. Um, but just the finesse that these right. students and obviously the teachers had was not only humbling, but educational to be around. I mean, that was an opportunity that nobody, I didn't know anybody for years that, even after I left France, that was had the, that opportunity that I had. I'm so grateful for it. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to Michael's and stayed another year, and then went on to open up um, Spago mm -hmm. for Wolfgang Puck, who I didn't really even know. I had been to where he had worked before at Mommy's Own, where he was the chef. Mm -hmm. But my then to be ex husband, because I met him at Michael's, so Mark. Mark was the opening sous chef at Michael's. He came from working with Wolfgang for several years at Mame's Own, left Wolfgang to do something new and was the sous chef. So I met him there, although we weren't together there. Mm -hmm. And he was the one that Wolfgang chose to bring into Spago to be his chef. Mm -hmm. And Mark convinced me I did not want to leave Michael's because it was still the place to be. Plus, I knew it was a success. I had no idea what Spago was going to be. Right. And at this time, you weren't thinking, Did you, were you thinking, like, I'll start a restaurant? No, 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 not no, even. no. I never, yeah. Yeah. You thought I'd just stay at Michael's for the rest of my career. Yeah, maybe stay at Michael's <laughs> for the rest yeah. of my career. And, you know, when I went on to work at Spago, I could have worked at Spago for the rest of my life. Um Wolfgang was a fantastic person to work for. I was paid well. I had free range in the kitchen. There was no reason for me to do anything else. And that opening up a restaurant really came about because I was married to Mark, who was sort of under the shadow of Wolfgang, and 
it was he that I kind of left and opened to, you know. Nancy, would you say that like at the time, you know, I know there's like the PayPal mafia or like all these different like companies where all these incredible entrepreneurs came out of, was it like the Wolfgang pack at that time? Like where like all these people that whether it was yourself or Mark, I'm sure there were several others that ended up becoming these incredible restaurateurs or was it somebody even like before Wolfgang? Um, well, let's say Michael, yeah. right? Michael there with Jonathan Waxman left. And then there was a guy named Gordon Nacarado and he went to open a very successful restaurant in, in Aspen. Um, a few other people opened smaller, you know, restaurants. Yeah. So Michael's like, you know, somebody, there's been a few times that people have done those family trees starting at Michael's and yeah. going on to Spago, you know, right. and then the after opening Campanile and La Brea Bakery, that family tree got big. And that was with you and Mark. Yeah, that that's a big tree. Right. With a lot of success. Right. Who, who are some of the people that were there? Well, at Campanile, you mean? Or, yeah, yeah both, at yeah. Campanile are Suzanne Tract, who has Jar, and Suzanne Gowen, who has Luke. Or sorry, she has AOC. She had yep, Luke. And, and then um, a guy by the name of Govan. Do you know Govan Armstrong? He had... Um, Trying to think of his he of his restaurant that he's at now. Um, sorry, Probably. I um, sorry, going out there if you're listening, because <laughs> uh, uh, he has a a, a, few, uh, a couple restaurants, but he went on to open up a place called uh, Table Eight that was very successful um, uh, in the Melrose area. And this was after leaving. Uh, well, no, after Campanile, he went to to some. Uh, other Spago alumni, but mm-hmm. also at a Campanile, there was Ben Ford. He had a place called Ford's Filling Station. Um, mm-hmm. Out of La Brea Bakery, there's a lot of bakeries that have opened up. I helped open the Corner Bakery in Chicago, and there was a, a handful of really great bakers that have opened up in Mississippi and in Chicago and Maine. And mm-hmm. So how long were you at Spago? And, and then so when did that kind of opportunity or... Th- thought or arise of starting your own restaurant? So I started it. So Spago opened in January of 1982 and I had um, my uh, first child in 19 um, at the end of the year in 82. So December and was at Spago until 85 and then got um, through a headhunter got um, wooed to wooed away from Spago to New York and spent, well, it wasn't a year in New York, but it was a, it was a project that didn't work at all, out at all. It was a restaurant called Maxwell's Plum. It was owned by this very, very ostentatious, flamboyant um, uh, restaurateur. His name was uh, Warner Leroy. He was part of the um, Jack Warner family. Mm-hmm. And he had two restaurants, big restaurants, big popular restaurants, um, Maxwell's Plum and Tavern on the Green. Maxwell's Plum is like a blockbuster video. No, there's no longer a blockbuster video. It would turn it into one and then something else. But for years and years and years, it was a pickup. That was the pickup restaurant. Got it. And and a bar that had a lot of Tiffany glass and very popular on the Upper East Side. And... Tavern on the Green was a gigantic popular restaurant that's still there in Central in, in Central Park. Um, but anyway, went there for a year. He wanted to turn Maxwell's Plum into his idea of a Spago. So who would he 
how would he do it? He would pay Mark and I to leave Spago, you know, dangling a very large paycheck. And we moved to New York. And, and I, you know, I did that also for, for Mark because it was his first opportunity to be like a founding member, be a founding member and the man in charge, you know, the person in charge. So we went, but it didn't, you know, uh, Maxwell's plum, the clientele there were so dialed into what they ate that they didn't want anything on the new menu. They kept asking for like the chicken curry with the 20 condiments around it back in the, you know, (laughs) baby back ribs with the, you know, bottled sauce. So it didn't work out. And, and that's when, um, Mark said, I'm ready to open my own restaurant. And what was that idea at the time? What kind of restaurant? Right. Well, my I loved living in New York, even though I didn't see the light of day. And all I did was work. Um, there was something about the vitality of New York. And it was not even a great time in New York because it was an era where all, all the big restaurants were closing um, restaurants didn't have a lot of long- longevity there, but yet I just wanted to be in New York. So we found a location. I didn't sign anything, but found a location in Soho and decided to rent a house in Tuscany for a month. And then we would come back and try to raise the money to open a restaurant. This is all while you have like a kid. Yeah. And... um so we rented this house in Italy, and while we were in Italy, in Tuscany, we um, kind of for the first time in our relationship, we actually cooked together every night because our relationship was strictly a restaurant relationship. And sort of the, 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 um, the joy of cooking simply, the joy of cooking locally, the joy of cooking seasonally was so important, we realized, to the dishes that we wanted to cook. So when we lived in New York, I didn't even know that there was a green market there, that there was a farmer's market there. All I knew is what was, you know, at the vegetable department, at the supermarkets. And three quarters of the year then, there was some green strawberries flown in from you know, uh, California, a few heads of iceberg and some root vegetables. But there was really, we knew that we could not cook seasonally and delicious in New York at that time. And so we thought, you know what, we have to go back to Los Angeles. So we came back to Los Angeles, decided not to open a restaurant in New York, came back to look for a location here. um, And Wolfgang was kind enough to hire us back because we needed to work. Yeah, so I went back to work actually at Spago, um, not as the pastry chef, but as pastry support because he had replaced me. And Mark actually went back to work at Chinois, Wolfgang's mm-hmm. restaurant in um, Santa Monica on Maine. And we both did that for a year plus. And it was while I was there that because there were some extra hands, myself and actually one other person, Wolfgang told us that he wanted to develop a bread program there, that he was really tired of the bread that was available in Los Angeles at that time. And he always 
would say that the most important part of a meal was the beginning and the end. So the beginning would be at that time bread because bread would come to your table because that's what would bring people in. And the end, because that's the memory that they left with, which was dessert. Um, And so I started making bread at Spago. I had never made bread before. But the bread that I made there was two kinds of bread. One was out of a mix that Wolfgang had found when he was in Austria. It was a, a mix of whole grain flours that all you had to do was follow the directions on the back of adding water, yeast, and mixing it, letting it rise, shaping it, and baking it. It was called a multigrain bread. And the other bread he really wanted to make and that we needed to work on was um, an olive bread. He wanted to do a, an olive sourdough bread. Now, let's t- turn this story back and add some more confusing <laughs> parts to it. So when I was in, when I went to New York for that one year, Jonathan Waxman, who had been the chef at Michael's, had preceded me in New York. He left Los Angeles and Michael's to go open up a California cuisine restaurant in uh, New York, which he called Jams. And with him, he brought Jimmy Brinkley, the famous Jimmy Brinkley, who Mm. was supposed to be out the door, who I was supposed to learn and did everything from him, who Mm. outlasted me. Mm -hmm. So Jonathan went to Jams and he had um, brought Jimmy with him and Jimmy was the pastry chef. And Jimmy only lasted there a handful of months. And Jimmy went to work at a restaurant called Sign of the Dove, which was right near Maxwell's Plum. And at Sign of the Dove, Jimmy started making bread. And I was fascinated by the bread that he made. But this is when I was at Maxwell's Plum. It wasn't even in my mind that I would make bread. But I saw that bread could be made or good bread could be made. And I kind of thought, wow, I'd like to do what Jimmy's doing one day Mm because he was making this bread. So I went to, um, well, actually, let me say, Jimmy left. What happened was, now that I'm thinking about this, Jimmy, so I was at Maxwell's Plum. Jimmy was at Sign of the Dove making bread. He had made his own sourdough starter and and, uh, he was making sourdough bread. And I was intrigued by it. While Jimmy was there, he did walk out with a huge fight with the owner of Sign of the Dub, and he took his sourdough starter and he dumped it onto the floor. And his assistant, who had been, who I had brought to New York to work with me at Maxwell's Plum, scooped up a little bit of that starter off the floor and saved it and started to feed and nurture it the way you did any kind of sourdough starter. When I left Maxwell's Plum, she gave me some of that starter to take with me, and that's the starter that I used at Spago (laughs) to help Wolfgang with his bread. That's crazy. It's like this holy starter. I know, this holy starter. Can't let it go to waste. Nope. (laughs) And that was the starter that was in the bread Wow! from at Spago. And I started to work from the bits and pieces that Jimmy had talked to me about while he was at Sign of the Dove. Is that starter still around? That starter is probably still around 
at Spago, you know, they, 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 meaning the scientists say that you can always, you can put a starter under a microscope and you can trace it back to, when I eventually started La Brea Bakery, I could have gone and got some of that starter at Spago. But I really wanted the process of my bread at La Brea Bakery to start from a starter that I made. So I made my own starter doing it in the method that Jimmy told me how he made his starter. Got it. Interesting. When did La Brea Bakery come around? So La Brea Bakery came around. So it, it opened the same year, but six months earlier than Campanile Restaurant. So this was 1989. Mm-hmm. So you opened two in one year. Yeah, the bakery opened first. So when when Mark and I came back to Los Angeles to find a location, we we wanted a location that was big enough. Well, this was sorry, I we didn't know what we we were looking going to look for a location. After this bread program that I started at um, Spago, I realized that I too wanted good bread at my restaurant, and I knew from working at Spago that it wasn't going to happen in the back of a, a, a restaurant kitchen that it needed, I needed to have a, you need to have a little bakery to give it a, its own little um, real estate to the bread. And so as we started to look for a location, I wanted to look for a location that was big enough where I could have not only a restaurant, but also a bakery on the same. Cause I knew that I wanted to be focused at one place. I didn't want to have to travel between the two. So the first location that we found that would for a campanile because that's what we wanted to open was a restaurant would not have been able to accommodate both. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through a set of circumstances, it being that the landlord of this building that we originally found, which was also on La Brea, but further North was a woman that um, kind of, was very spiritual. She, her name was Julie Newmar. I don't even know if she's still alive. She was the original Catwoman, mm-hmm. and she really followed the moons and the sun and the you know and uh, astrology. Astrology and when Mercury was in retrograde. Yeah, and, and yeah, so well, when Mercury was in retrograde is when we were ready to sign our paperwork. And you don't <laughs> sign during Mercury in retrograde. So everything yeah. was on hold. Mark for, that down, folks. Don't yeah, sign don't legal sign, papers. Yeah, don't sign them because if you have two anxious parents like I had that took the opportunity to drive three blocks further south on La Brea and found the building where Campanile and La Brea Bakery became, which was clearly big enough to hold both. I got a call from my mom and said, you know, we started heading towards Wilshire and there is a kooky building. You should go look at it, but it would be big enough to have bakery and... So that that time delay helped. That time delay helped. Again, the stars, my lucky star, fate, whatever it is, you know? I mean, because it was really La Brea Bakery that put me on the map. It mm-hmm. wasn't. I mean, look, no. at, people loved Campanile, and um, and to this day, I just hear so many wonderful stories of the food that people ate there and how much, and what an effect Campanile had on the food climate of 
Los Angeles. But it really was La Brea Bakery that put me on the map. Mm-hmm. And so had I not found or my parents had not found that building or if Mercury wasn't in retrograde, none of this wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think I read, um, I don't know how, exactly what year it was, but you ended up selling La Brea Bakery. Is that right? Yeah. Why did, why did, was it just like the right opportunity? Like how did that whole thing come about? So look at, I started La Brea Bakery because I really became passionate about bread and I just loved it. I loved every single thing about it, including the hours being up all night. Mm -hmm. I loved all of it, but I did it to make a loaf of bread. And um, when we first opened it, I mixed, I shaped, I baked and I sold the bread, right? And then we got a little busier, so I stopped selling the bread. And then a little more busy, and we, I stopped mixing the dough. But I always baked the bread. I, always, I wouldn't give that up for anything. Um, but we just, it, be, it was just so popular from the beginning that we were just bursting at the seams. You know, the type of bread that it was was a process that was very long, and it wasn't a continual process. There's only so much we could make given how much it needed to rest is what we call it. And our customers didn't understand that. They couldn't understand why they would come over at one o'clock in the afternoon and we'd be sold out of bread. And it's like, that's all we can make kind of thing. So we moved our bakery to a larger facility on Washington Boulevard. And that little space on La Brea became dead because it became a drop-off place. No bread was baked there. And it was really depressing for me. There was no smell. There was no nothing. I was still baking over at Washington. But that's when we added the um, sweet side to the bakery, where we started adding not to wholesale, but we started adding, started baking, but all the bre- the morning pastries. But it started to get so big that I couldn't bake anymore. Mm-hmm. And after that, whether I owned it or I sold it, it didn't really, yeah. you know, it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was Mark a partner in this as well? Yes. So what we did was, first of all, Mark, yeah, we, Mark and I were both partners in Camp and Le Bray Baker, but so were all the investors. So the investors invested in a bakery in a restaurant, yep. and we knew whoever was going to want to. So when we decided to put it up for sale, we know we knew that whoever bought it wanted to buy a bakery, didn't want to buy a restaurant that sort of just squeezed right. out the profit, right? So we we um put a lot of kind of money and paperwork into splitting the two entities, even though everybody had the same shares of both, they had to look different on paper, you know? So, so yes, you know, everybody and everybody did so well, you know, people love to, you know, put out the figures of what I got when it sold, but they didn't realize that none of that was mine. You know, it's like, (laughs) okay, great. But I mean, yes, La Brea Bakery sold for a ton of money. La Brea Bakery had, um, a lot of money they owed because we had already started to get into the par-bake business where we had a huge manufacturing facility in right. Van Nuys. But besides that, there were, a t- you know, there was 30 investors. Mm-hmm. So what people love to fantasize that I got was not <laughs> what I got. But I still, yeah. to get some chunk is, I never dreamed of that. Yeah. yeah. And after that, point what's going through your head is it just you know moving forward i want to start something new or yeah but not never ever thinking and and never thinking even now never thinking of those that dollar figure mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. but it became easier no like the ideas that you had were actually now 
Not easier to start. I mean, I mean, easier to start, perhaps. Well, it may be easier because more credibility. People right. were willing to invest. Back you up, yeah. But I think that what, if I have had to look back and try to figure out why I have been successful, I think that for whatever reason, I have a gift for being able to understand what people really want. So people really wanted good bread. People really wanted California-ish cuisine, California slash Italian cuisine, you know, whatever that is. People wanted pizza. People wanted the burgers that we're doing. You know, you just, I, I, people wanted, you know, I, I started this thing at uh, Campanile to bring business to a very slow bar night at the restaurant, which was Thursday night. I started doing grilled cheese sandwiches mm. there. With people like wanted, not with tomato soup, just, just with French fries cheese. and arugula salad. But Oof. people, that's how I met Michael at that grilled cheese, you know, <laughs> that grilled cheese night. People just flocked to it because basically, Give them all their tasting menus, but really all they want to do is eat a grilled Gruyere sandwich, you know? That's all I want. That when you bite wedding. it, it's buttery yeah. and it, right. you know, pulls from your mouth. And wow. so I, and I. That's getting hungry. Yeah. Getting hungry. No, I could, you know, but I think that, I think that I do have a little bit of that gift of right. what yeah. people want to eat. When I, you know, did mozza and put in that mozzarella bar, people love eating. Fresh mozzarella and burrata and you right. know all those you know and yeah. you know it's delicious. I've I've had it and it's <laughs> so good. We talked about earlier in the podcast about this, um, how, or, or how chefs now became these like celebrities, uh, and that wasn't the case when we were like growing up. Even Pat and I, like 25, 20, 15 years ago, uh, you had your Food Network stars like you know your Emerald Lagasse's mm-hmm. and Mario Batali's and uh, Rachel Ray's. I mean, you had kind of those yeah. folks, but. Even then, you just kind of saw them as TV chefs, TV cooks. Now, the chef has become like one of the most aspirational careers, it seems, right? And like, accept it. Every household right. wants, yeah, you want to right. be, you know, they, they, like, I want my future kids yeah, to be chefs so they yeah. can cook for me when I'm like older, you know? Or they could be these chefs, these TV personalities, you know? I'm that good you with that too. About. Right. I'm good with that too. So even though, um, yeah, they became TV personalities and the kids that, grew up watching them or um they are so smitten with them. I I have so many young people that come into the restaurant. Young, I mean like seven year olds, you know, (laughs) four year olds, that their parents will say they live for you. You know, you are their big you're their hero, you know. Was that weird for you though? Like when like when you became this like like you went from like a Sonoma State student who like had a crush on this dude that you wanted to cook for you're like, okay, I think this is something that I'll, I, I like to do. And now, like, you're this person that still does the cooking, but people are, like, looking up to you. Well, you know who d- what did that really was Chef's Table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, eight years ago? Like, yeah. nine years ago? I mean, not even, like, too long ago. <laughs> it was not that. Yeah. And still. Yeah. And then still people will say, I've watched your episode 50 times. I'm yeah. thinking, why? You yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or I just saw it. Before. It's very therapeutic, right? Like, I mean, Pat and I were just hanging out a couple months ago and we were watching the episode with like Grant Ashots and we've known each other yeah. for 10 years. We're just hanging out watching like this dude cooking, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's like weird, like on like paper, but, but at the same time, yeah. I think it's more about 
the same reason why this podcast, you know, is something people enjoy. I think people really like to hear the stories of how the food that they're eating, like, got there, mm-hmm. right? Like, or how the human behind it did that. It's really, it's less so about the food. It's more so about the experience and the story. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people in this generation, and I think that's why social media and TikTok and all these things have become and will probably remain successful, is because is because people want to hear the backstory. They want to hear like how it came to be. How can we go on that track? Is that something that's feasible? And I think Chef's Table definitely does that. Yeah. Right? It definitely yeah. romanticizes it and it's, it's definitely sexier than right. it probably <laughs> is. But, I mean, you're like, wow. Like, I want to be Grant or Shots. Like, yeah. I want to be Nancy Silverton. Right. I want to be, you know, who's the guy in Italy who I'm forgetting his Massimo name? Massimo Bottura. Massimo Bottura. Bottura right? Yeah. Like, you want to be these characters right. that... Your parents wouldn't have accepted right. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Exactly. You know? That's why it was so shocking that my parents then did not object to my decision to right. be a cook. Right. So uh, what what comes next for you? What's like the – I know you, you're you, – are you still opening up Mozas around? Yeah. You know, yeah. we have opened um, last year. So so I I had the three restaurants – on the corner, you mm-hmm. know, in Los right. Angeles. And then I have the pizzeria in Newport Beach. Mm-hmm. Opened up for a very short time for a development that just didn't work out in San Diego. Um, and that didn't work out. Um, but during the pandemic, during, oh, see, now we're back to that word. What are we calling it again? <laughs> during the, uh, yeah. That during thing where, in 2020. Yeah, that yeah. thing in 2020 where people had time to, um, Hang think out about with their the future and dinner, yeah. yeah have hang, <laughs> and have discussions a whole bunch of opportunity came my way right. and because myself and everybody else didn't know what the future was you know LA could have just closed up forever and packed its bags and left right i had no idea so i started saying yes to all these things so in the last year plus i opened up in cabo i opened up in london and i reopened up in singapore and we'll be opening this year in um, in uh, Hawaii on the island of Lanai, in um, Washington, D.C. next year, Miami. And is this mainly pizzeria mozza and osteria mozza? Some of them hybrids. Hybrids. And or one or the other. All under sort of the mozza, so, mozza name. So now yeah. it's pretty clear. You know, I got kicked off. Of the um, at the mozzarella bar because that's when um, I first opened the restaurant is where I would be every night so I can be with my my customers and also be doing something right so I would work at the mozzarella bar and I did for years and they finally kicked me out when I was so bad about my scheduling I couldn't they couldn't you know rely on me so it's clear that this next chapter in my life is going to be. Um, about finding uh, other opportunities for my brand and for actually the cooks. You know, when I was at Spago after the first year, and I had always thought, because there weren't a lot of chains then or, or, or chefs that I respected that had more than one restaurant. You know, certainly there was chains. There's always Of, been chain of the same name? Like or a same brand. at all. Like um, the chefs that I knew of had, there's, Flagship restaurant. Right. That was it. Wolfgang had Spago. Right. And after about a year, he said he was going to open up 
this Chinese French restaurant called Chinois. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Wolfgang, how could you open another restaurant and you wouldn't be at Spago every night? Got how it. can somebody, you know, and I was so yeah. confused. And he said, look, if I don't open more restaurants for my chefs to go to, they will leave me because there won't be any opportunity right. here. Now, that's probably not the only reason, and that's not the only reason I'm doing that. But it is nice to be able to give growth. Right, to your people. To my people. So that's, you know, I that's clearly the next chapter in my life is, and I do love to travel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. on Saturday, I leave for Singapore. Well, I'll be there for 10 days, and then I'll come back for about a week. Do you still split your time with Italy or... Yeah, and I always fit in my my yeah. time in Italy because I have a house there now, you right. know. So I go in the summer it in and Tuscany? Christmas. It's in Umbria. Yeah, which is ne- is that near Tuscany? Yeah, it's right, yeah. right there next to it. Um, and then I'll come back for a week ish, and I'll be going to London to do a project. I mean, to see my restaurant there and to do some dinners there, and then I'll be back and I'll be going to uh, um, Cabo, and then on to Hawaii. And this is just gonna continue because these places that I'm opening now as um and the places that I named you in the future ones sort of around the world they're all management deals mm-hmm. so I don't own them right I do the menu hire the chef but the people that work there work for the hotel if it's right. a hotel or development right. which is the way it has to be there's there's no risk for me but also I wouldn't be able to do the human resource aspect in all these different countries and mm-hmm. states, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I, I, so I don't know if you're still doing it, but I saw like you, you mentor a lot of folks and you're also the culinary ambassador for the Ohio Valley. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. And that's are you a, still doing that uh-huh. too? Yeah. And I love that. Nice. So I do, I, yeah. I sort of curate a few events up in Ohio, which is so easy to get to. There's no plane involved. Right. And, you, you can know. just yeah, drive there. Do you still enjoy cooking? I do. And I'll tell you when I get to do it. And I, don't fight with doing it other than when I'm home in Italy. And I'm there two months in the summer and two weeks in Christmas, and I cook. And I really love it. I cook at a low, you know, slow pace. Um, nobody's looking over my shoulder. Um, I'm very, very, um, are you, I'm very, very methodical. I love to make a list. I love to cross off, yep. you know, I love going shopping. I recently found this incredible um, farm owned by these twin brothers uh, that's so close to me, and it kind of changed my cooking because the vegetables are so good there. But that's where I love to cook. At work, not, though, is where I go and I um, help. I either initiate dishes or I come in and I work side by side and collaborate on a dish. Mm-hmm. But I, that's sort of my favorite part is I'm still so excited by ingredients and I'm still so excited about the um, steps it takes to get a dish on the menu. Besides food and traveling, what are you passionate about or what are you excited about for the future? Well, you know, another question that's often asked in love, what would you be doing if I wasn't cooking, mm. right? It, I, there isn't. There's nothing I would be able to do. But what do I love? I love design. You know, I love fashion. But these are just things that I appreciate from a distance, not right. that I want to be a fashion designer nor or a 
uh, boutique owner or anything like that. It's just I do love fashion. You don't want to start like a clothing line made out of mozzarella or no, something? No, I, I don't. Uh-uh. <laughs> okay. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, and I do. I I'm love. Really looking forward to that. But I love design. I love travel. Love, love travel. I love all the. I mean, I love to go on a trip, and I love that one thing that I come back with that mm-hmm. I get so excited about and get to share with the staff. And- Where's the one place you've been in the world that perhaps others may not have been yet? So I have, if, you know, I don't feel like I've been to any place that's that remote. Hmm. Um, Several years ago, you know, and part of, you know, I never really travel for pleasure, pleasure being, if you saw my quotation marks, because (laughs) it is only pleasure, but I always have a work component to it, or I wouldn't allow myself to do it. So several years ago... I did a food and wine festival in South Africa, and it, they gifted us a um, safari at the end. And I'm not even an animal lover, and that was an extraordinary experience to be on a safari. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that's and phenomenal. It is, and to understand—not to understand, but to realize what the animal world is all about, and how Mother Nature works—is Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Um, but uh, you know, I'm I'm definitely a city person. I'm not a uh, back roads hiking person necessarily. So I love I love cities, and so therefore I haven't been to anyone that's that's so remote that I would say to somebody, "You've got to find your way there." <laughs> and once you do, you know. But I've been to a lot of countries. What's the best restaurant you've eaten at anywhere in the world? Where have I had some of the finest meals? However well, you want to yeah. answer that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, best. That's, best is well, like... Best like, is like, wow, what is, what is best? And like recently, I mean, I think that when I worked at 464 Magnolia and I had my first meal at Chez Panisse... Mm. I think that that defined my path. Looking at the simplicity and yet the perfection and the, um, and what it takes to put that kind of food on the plate by the way the food is grown to the people that prepared it Mm -hmm. to how it got there on the plate. You know, that importance. I think that is what sort of set me on the path and I've never wavered. It's always been food of that type Mm. that I've always enjoyed the most, appreciated and hold the most esteem, esteem to. Do you, Alice Waters, Dominique Crenn, do you guys have this like collective of like this three legendary female chef trio you know, um, I don't think we've all three been in the same room, but I've certainly been the two of us. And actually, yeah. Dominique Cran and I, later this year, it was put off. It was supposed to be in 2020. Um, cooking in the most beautiful little village in Tuscany. Um, I don't remember the name of the village. The name of the hotel that's sponsoring it is called Monteverde. And we'll be actually cooking for a week together. Wow. End of this year. End of 20. How does one get an invite to that <laughs> event? Um, 
We've had Dominic on the show. We've had we've had Alice Waters on the show. We've actually had Wolfgang on the show too. So maybe yeah. we should <laughs> maybe all everyone in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Good event. Yeah. Nancy, this has been such an incredible conversation. Just like hearing where you started and how you ended up here and this like path that you've been on is like insane because it's like you would never think it at the time, like wh- wh- how one thing is going to lead to another. I think it's like the Steve Jobs quote of like connecting the dots, looking backwards. Yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to do that in hindsight, but like in the moment, just kind of following your gut as to like what you should do next and just taking those opportunities and like when a door opens, just taking it. I think there's something to be learned about that and, uh, and apply to really every walk of life. And so um, we can't thank you enough for just, you know, sharing it, being so open with it and having us in your beautiful home as well. And uh, it's been a pleasure. It has been, you know, it's sort of, it has been a pleasure reliving it. And it's funny you forget about certain things. Like I forgot about that starter that was scraped up off. Yeah. It was scraped up off the floor, right? Crazy. I mean, I have told it before, but I haven't thought about it for a long time. Um, and I think that, you know, with a lot of your questions, you got me really thinking about um, sort of many of those challenges, but many of those kind of life lessons that I will continue to share with other people. Because people ask all the time what you know for right. advice and those are the kinds of um advice that you want to mm. give you don't want to say work hard you right know? yes that's not well, i think advice. that's the that, i think that's the cop-out response right and i think that you know pat and i before we started this always asked people these types of questions and you know and we felt like what we were getting online or through books or whatever weren't really going as deep as we wanted or it was always kind of glossing over the truth yeah and embellishing on moments that perhaps happened, but not in that exact format. Um, and I think because of that, entrepreneurship has been so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I want to stop using the word sexy, but, uh, <laughs> glorified? Like glorified. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so much more real than that. It's so much more gritty than that. It's so much more random than just that. And I think that your story was probably one of the best examples of, I mean, just all over. Like, I mean, who knew like this was going to happen? I don't think you did. I don't think anybody no. else around you did. I don't think. But that's the beauty. You know, did. that's yeah. sort of that's the beauty, the mystery. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much, Nancy. Thank <laughs> you.